Good morning. Hey, I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we continue our churchwide campaign called The Story. Of the past couple of weeks, if you haven't been here or just to catch you up, we, we've kind of learned about the kings of Israel. Remember the nation after the Israelites got led out of the promised land, they conquered the promised land. Then we see them want a king like all the nations around them. And while God knew that wasn't a good idea, he let them have a king anyways. The first king they had was King Saul. And King Saul, you know, through his reign, he didn't take responsibility for his actions. He kind of always brushed things off, didn't follow God. And so God said, all right, I want someone, you know, a man after my own heart. And so then we see this uh, idea of, of David being brought from a shepherd to a king. David sought God with his entire being, and he was elevated to a position he could have never earned on his own. But just because David was the king and he sought God's heart doesn't mean he was perfect. I mean, he was far from perfect. We see David making some terrible decisions, and those decisions had consequences. But what we see is David was kind of set free from those decisions because of confession and repentance. And from there, we see, last week we learned about the, his son named Solomon. Solomon was a great political leader, built a mighty kingdom, built a lot of buildings, and just really had a lot of economic success, but he constantly dabbled in the gray area. And so while he was a great political leader, he failed spiritually and failed, well, bad. Because of that, God said, okay, I'm not going to let your sons have this entire nation. We, we can't do that. He said, I'm going to split the kingdom from you. God said he was going to divide the nation. So we sent a prophet to this person named Jeroboam. An unplanned meeting, uh, the prophet goes with this brand new cloak, kind of like they're walking down a path. This guy, Jeroboam, who's seemed like he's doing some great things in the kingdom, meets a prophet who has this brand new cloak, and it says this, 1 Kings eleven thirty one. 31. It says, then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord of the God of Israel says. I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. So he's just walking along, the prophets, like what prophets do some strange things sometimes, starts ripping this brand new thing up, says here, take 10 pieces for yourself, you're going to rule 10 kingdoms, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he's going to rule the other one, because Benjamin and, and uh, Judah come together as one. And then 1 Kings eleven forty, it says Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, the, uh, to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. So Solomon found out about this prophecy, evidently, and, and then all of a sudden we see Jeroboam fleeing to get out of the reach of Solomon. And then Solomon dies, you know this, Solomon dies like everybody else, and all of Israel went to make Rehoboam the king of Israel, which is Rehoboam is Solomon's son. When Jeroboam heard that Solomon had died, he came back from Egypt you see, all the people like Jeroboam, just Solomon didn't because he was supposed to be this new king. It says this, 1 Kings 12, 3-4. It says, so they, that's Israel, sent for Jeroboam. And he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. So the next king of Israel is naturally the son of Solomon. So all of Israel go to confirm Rehoboam as their king, but they just say, hey, listen, 
we need your help. We need you to do this one thing. And so while we saw last week about how it looks like Solomon's kingdom was grand and the buildings were impressive and all the money was impressive, we see that the people were like, listen, you've put too much of a tax burden on us. You know, because what it is, you have the tribes from the north, 10 tribes from the north going, hey, we're having to build all this stuff in the south. We're having to spend all this money. We're having to give all this labor. Like it's, it's become too much. Can you give us some ease? One scholar says, sectionalism with all its force and fury has backed Rehoboam into a corner. You see, sectionalism is when you focused on one particular area, one little area, one little thing in the kingdom and for neglect the rest. And so what Solomon's leadership did is it started to divide, started to cause some disunity going, you know, all that stuff happening down there is great, but what about us? We're getting tired. We're getting wore out. So there's a new king. They come and say, hey, here's what's going on. Will you lighten the load for us? Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Now, to be fair, that seems like a pretty wise answer, doesn't it? Anybody else have a problem with answering questions immediately and not taking the time to think them through sometimes? No, just me? Okay, that's fine. I'll be on my own today, all right? He says, you know what? Give me three days. I'll think about it, then come back. And it says, then Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father during the li- his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. Now, he does another wise thing. He goes to his father's council. Remember, Solomon's problem wasn't a political problem. Solomon's problem was a spiritual problem. So these are the men who who advised the wisest person to ever live, the one who great this great kingdom. So, I mean, these guys have experience. They got a lot going for them. So Rehoboam says, hey, how would you advise me? What, What should I say? Says they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. This is just great political advice, isn't it? That's all it is. He's like, hey, you know what? We might change it up later, but right now, just go with it. Get everybody on the same page. But Rehoboam rejected the advice that the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Now, this isn't a story about younger people not listening to the older people. Although, you know, we can easily look at it that way. That's not what's happening. You see, Rehoboam is 41 when he becomes king. Now, I know that's not necessarily a senior citizen, but especially back then, that's not really a te- It's not even close to a teenager, is it? I mean, 41 is an adult. So the people he is consulting is adult. You see, one scholar says a better translation for this story isn't elders versus young but it's veterans versus newcomers. So we don't really know how old the advisors are for Solomon, but what we see here is there's a veteran group of people who Rehoboam could have learned from. People who have been politically, militarily, been around all of this stuff, but he rejects that. And instead he goes to the new people he brought on. It says the people he hung out with, the people he grew up with. Now let's let's be fair to Rehoboam. Rehoboam, do you think he was spoiled? Yeah, okay, he had everything he needed, right? Who do you think his friends were? The ones who had to fight, great military, great political? Well, no, the other people in the kingdom who probably grew up, you know, very wealthy. So he's not asking people with a good vantage point of how to handle politics and leadership. 
He's asking people who are like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Let's just go for it. So he, so he asked them. Now, now let's be honest and be fair to Rehoboam. Have you ever rejected the advice someone gave you and went and looked for better advice from someone else that kind of agreed with you? Am I on my own again for this one? Have we all done this? Okay, yeah. He's just going, you know what? Yeah, that might be good, but I don't like it. So let me go find someone who agrees with me. And they not only agree with him, they speak into his pride and all sorts of stuff. Look at what they say. He asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten up the yoke your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him replied, listen, I don't know who says stuff like this. This is crazy. They said, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it even heavier. My father scored you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Who gives advice like that? Anybody else recognize that it's terrible? Yeah, scorpions is a whip with nails through it. This isn't the most political thing to say to people. And so obviously this is terrible. Obviously this is provoking the people. So three days later, it says, Jeroboam and the people returned to Rehoboam as the king has said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scored you with the whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. You're hoping that he kind of like added some words, maybe had a speech writer. I mean, he is rich after all, kind of softened it. He did not. Word for word, just repeated, okay? It says, so the king did not listen to the people for this turn of events was from, from who? The Lord. To fill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam. Now, as we expect, the people come asking for some mercy. The king completely rejects it. The northern tribes return home. They make Jeroboam their king. They're like, hey, we're not following that guy. The southern tribes make Rehoboam their king. And so now we have a kingdom divided. And it doesn't stop. We have a kingdom torn in two. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, didn't like that. So he mustered the troops together. He said, all right, I got two tribes. They got 10. I think the odds are in my favor. You can do the math. They're not. He said, I'm gonna muster the troops and I'm gonna go to war. But a prophet came, look at this. But a prophet came and said this. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up and fight against your brother, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord, went home, again, as the Lord had ordered. And this story is very tricky. At first glance, it looks like, oh, there's several just practical applications we can make here. However, here's what the story is not about. The story is not about the need for democracy or or anything like that. While the group wanted leniency, they did not want separation. They understood the king was the king. And this is not a moral story might change some of your Sunday school teachers' lessons. I know that. This is not a moral story about the younger people must listen to the old. The biblical text does not allow that. You see, from the very beginning, the very beginning, we see that God said he was gonna tear the kingdom apart. 
After the kingdom is uh, torn apart, we see God say and take responsibility for the kingdom being torn apart and said, hey, don't go to war because I did this. You following me? Yet on the other hand, we see that the author is clearly showing us that Rehoboam made terrible decisions. If they weren't interested in showing us that, they wouldn't have been such a detailed historical account of all the actions there. So we see that Rehoboam made a clear choice and made a bad decision. You see, this story, we can see one of the great mysteries in all of Scripture. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You see, God's sovereignty is the biblical idea that God possesses all power and all control and ruler of all things. That God rules according to his eternal purposes, even through events that seem like it opposes the things of God. And in scripture, we see that God rules the earth and all creation. We see he rules human history. We see he rules redemption, the, the salvation plan. And while God is sovereign, we still see humans can make decisions. And we see that humans are held responsible for these decisions. And the thing about this is the scripture never resolves the tension. We have to remember that the way we think where we want to categorize and we want to systemize everything, that's not how they thought back then. They would put two things that seem at odd right next to each other and just go with it. They weren't interested in laying out how everything worked. You see, they understood a passage quite well. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow the words of the law. You see, what's revealed to us, and, and, and it's very tricky, is that God is sovereign He's in control, but yet you and I can make choices and we are responsible for those choices. This tension is never resolved and repeated throughout. In fact, this is the most debated topic in all of theology. And every six months to a year, I think I figured it out. I'm just letting you know. I'm like, all right, I got it. I have finally helped the entire theological world in this debate that's been going on for thousands of years. I got it figured out. So I go back to all the stuff just to learn I have not even come close. The tension is there. But what I can tell you is what's been revealed to us is God is sovereign, yet humans have a choice. It's called a mystery, it's a paradox but it's not a contradiction. Everybody understand these two ideas? Shake your head yes, or I'm gonna keep repeating myself. I've repeated myself a lot. Make sure we're on the same page. Okay, now, good. So this is how it spoke to me. This, this kind of really rocked me this, this week, because again, I've tried to figure it all out. Once again, I got caught up in the weeds, and it wasn't fruitful for anybody, just to let you know. But what stood out to me about God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Well, I was encouraged, I was worn and I was comforted. I went through this kind of emotional roller coaster with these ideas. And the great thing about my job is when I go through things like that, guess what I get to do? I get to share them with you. That's how this whole preaching thing works. God deals with me first, and then I get to just tell you what he's, 
how he's dealt with me. You see, what spoke to me this week is the how. I found this so fascinating. Stay with me. How God tore the kingdom apart. You see, a lot of times, well, we see that God says, I'm gonna tear it apart. A lot of times in scripture, we see these things like God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You remember that back in Egypt? We see things like God raising up other nations. We see God raising up other leaders. But we don't see that this time. What I found so fascinating is that the way the kingdom was torn apart is that God just let the decisions Rehoboam made play out. Think about that. Rehoboam made a terrible political decision, how he responded. And the way God tore the kingdom apart was by not intervening with Rehoboam's terrible decision. He didn't stop it, and he didn't correct it. So when God spoke to Solomon and said, I'm going to tear the kingdom apart, it's because he already knew that Rehoboam was going to make some really bad choices, and he let them play out. He let them take their course. He didn't have to do anything but do nothing. He let the natural bad decisions take their course. And here's how this spoke to me. First, it comforts me. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, it comforts me because God knows what I'm gonna do before I do it. You see, part of understanding God's sovereignty, again, remember the idea that he rules and owns everything. Part of understanding his sovereignty is what's called his foreknowledge. Scripture reveals that God knows all things, past, present, and future. This is hard for us to grasp because we're so limited, but this means that we can trust his promises. We don't have to worry about him guessing or hoping. We know that when he speaks to matters like we can have eternal life through him, we can count on that. We can bank on that. We can trust that he knows how it's gonna work out. When we read that one day there's gonna be full justice and mercy given, we can count on that because he's not guessing, he's not hoping, his vantage point is very different from ours. We can trust that it's gonna work out exactly how he says it's going to work out. Now, on the other hand, for God's foreknowledge, that means God knows what I'm gonna do before I do it. Anybody ever make bad choices here? All right, so I'm not alone on that one. Okay, finally, we're, we're in agreement on something. But he still loves me, and he still accepts me, and he still cares about me, and he still has brought me into calling me a child of his, although he knows I'm not always gonna do the right thing? That's amazing. The psalmist describes it this way, Psalms 139. He says, oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. Does that scare you? But he already does. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do, to which we all go, I mean, really? You know what I'm gonna say before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me? How does he go before me and follow me? 
Oh, he surrounds me with his presence. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful me, too great for me to understand. And I'm right there with him. I don't understand it. The psalmist says he's always with us. He knows us. He knows you. He knows what we're going to do. He knows our heart. He knows our thought. He knows what we think. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I encounter after they sin or when they're in this midst of terrible choices, they pull away from God. They run from God. They think, well, if I distance myself, then maybe I won't feel so bad. But what the psalmist is saying, he still knows you. You don't have to run. You, you can't hide. Remember in the Garden of Eden, after they sinned, they tried to hide from God, but he knew right where they were at. The idea is that he already knows. We don't have to pull away. We don't have to run. We could be comforted in the fact that he still loves us and accepts us and is right there with us. He accepts you and all your shortcomings and all the bad decisions. It should comfort you. It comforts me. But it also warns me, the idea of God's sovereignty and my responsibility. Because God will allow my action to bear their natural consequences. Sometimes, like you, evidently, you agreed. Sometimes we make bad decisions. And part of God creating the world is the idea of establishing principles and laws that govern our world, our lives, and human behavior. See, most of the world is rather predictable. You know this already, right? It's called what? Science, the investigation of that, right? The idea is that, well, anybody waking up worried about gravity? We're like, all right, yeah, okay, I get that, yeah. God already established, that's already here. In fact, did you know you're rather predictable? If you weren't, psychologists and counselors wouldn't have a job. You think what you're going through is unique, unique to you? It's not. Humans are very predictable, very. And so part of that is God creating in this world these natural things, these natural cause and effect, reap and sowing. You, you already know this. We're just putting language around it. Events and things that guide our lives. And so while God knows me, I still have choices, and my choices still bear consequences. And that's what we see in the life of David. That's what we see in the life of Solomon. We talked all about their sins and the things they went through and the consequences of that, which means if we were wise, we would seek wisdom. If my actions and the things I go through will bear consequences, we can go to other people and ask for their help. See, Proverbs 12, 15 says, the ways of fools seem right to them, but the wise listen to advice. He said, because things repeat, we can go to people who've been before us and say, hey, you know what? How has this worked out in your life? One of the great things Jessica and I got to do is go to her grandparents who were married 72 years and go, hey, how did you do that? And they told us, I'll share that with you on our marriage day, okay? I'll share that advice with you later. But we got to say, hey, how did you work this out? You see, Rehoboam does that. He goes to the advice of the veterans. He goes to the advice of the younger people. And what spoke to me about this is that I can't figure it out. That God is sovereign, he knows, but yet I'm still responsible and while I was digging in the weeds, while I was pulling open resources and reading a bunch of books, what I finally figured out, and I can't believe it took me this long to get it, I realized it should call us to do one thing. 
Sometimes you get so caught up in the theoretical, you miss the practical. Have you ever been there? We should just simply seek God's intervention. This tension, this mystery isn't for us to figure out. But this story encouraged me because I can seek God to intervene on my behalf. See, when I look at Rehoboam, he sought the wisdom of the older people. He sought the wisdom of the young. But who didn't he seek wisdom from? And that's where I found myself in the story. How often can I rely on my expertise? How often can I rely on the advice from my friends? How often can I rely on people who've been down the road before me? And while humans can give wisdom, humans are great people to bounce things off of. Imagine if Rehoboam would assault God. How often do we make decisions and leave them out? I mean, honestly, like it's kind of, am I the only one who does this too? But he already knows. The best a human can do is predict. The best God can do is what? No. So I finally realized this great tension, this great mystery, that my actions have consequences, that God already knows and can intervene but doesn't always intervene. The best thing I can do is just go seek his guidance and wisdom in all things. It's called what? Prayer. It's prayer. And then I thought about Jesus' disciples' prayer when he teaches us how to pray, and I realized that's exactly what he's teaching us how to do. Look at this, Matthew 6, 9, it says this. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You already probably know this. Go back one verse. It's verse 9. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's two things there that are right next to each other. God is our Father. He wants an intimate relationship with us, like a father and son that cares and protects. Now, you may have had a bad father. I understand that. He's not saying bring up the things that your father didn't do. He's saying the ideal, perfect father who's there to provide, to comfort, to care, that's God. But yet, where is this father located? In heaven. His throne room is where? Heaven, okay. So he's the God that's above and in control, but yet he wants the intimate thing. We see these ideas of him intervening, but yet he's sovereign. It's a great tension. But then he, we pray for this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, just imagine if Rehoboam would have stopped and prayed this. God, there's a tension in your kingdom, your people. Father, your will be done. Intervene on my behalf. Intervene in my life to lead the way you want me to lead. Intervene on my behalf so I make the right decision. Praying puts that in perspective. Praying says, God, you already know what's gonna happen. God, you're able to do things. God, will you? God, I need you. Will you intervene on my behalf today? It says, give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. But look at verse 13. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This whole thing is saying, God, intervene. 
God, you can, you know, show up and intervene on my behalf. Greek scholar Bill Mount says, this word deliver means to drag away from. When was the last time you asked God to grab you by the collar and pull you out of something? How many times should you have asked God to grab you by the collar and pull you out of something? You see, prayer isn't just saying, God, I need, God, give me, God, you know that promotion, God, you know that car, God, you know that cell phone. It's saying, God, you already know. And you're able and willing to intervene in the lives of your people. So God, I'm gonna ask you to do that. God, if something's going on in my life, I I got a choice to make. Can you show up and help? and make sure I make the right thing. So this week, we've talked about some heavy things the past couple weeks about sin and the consequences. This week is just, I'm gonna ask you a question, how's your prayer life? Do you pray? And I just wanna remind you to pray. That the great tension that we have a sovereign God who's in control. We have a God who knows absolutely everything Rehoboam's folly, he didn't care to ask God about his decisions. And I went, oops. Maybe I've done that once or twice. So how's your prayer life? See, this week I was encouraged about the importance of prayer, the, necess- the necessity of prayer, the reliability of prayer, and the power of prayer See, I was taught a prayer a while back and I try to pray it as consistently as I can and I realize it's perfectly in line with this whole idea. The prayer I was taught, and I invite you to pray it as well, says this, Father, help me see danger coming from a distance. Can he do that? Yeah, he, that's the point. He absolutely knows when danger's coming. Father, help me see danger coming from a distance and help me be what? Bold. That's what it takes. Help me be bold enough to make the right choice to avoid it. Because although he knows, he still will allow my decisions to bear their consequences. And so what if we, what if you ask God every day to intervene on your behalf? What if you ask them to say, hey God, I'm gonna make 100,000 choices today at work with my marriage. I mean, you should see the studies on how many choices we make a day. What if we just said, God, hey, I'm gonna make a lot of them. Help me see danger coming. Help me see how this is gonna play out. With your foreknowledge, intervene on my behalf, Lord, because I'm trying. Intervene on my behalf and let me know when it's coming so I can get out of the way or make the right choice or turn around whatever I got to do. So imagine Instead of you shouldering all these decisions that's wearing you down, that's stressing you out, what if you sought the Lord? And what's stopping you from doing so? So this week, why not just pray? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and while we don't have the great mystery resolved about how your sovereignty and our responsibility works, what we do learn is that there is a massive power in prayer. And Father, we can come to you and ask you to intervene on our behalf. We can ask you to warn us, to give us insight, to protect us, to pull us out of things when we need to be. 
Father, we know you love us because you're our Father. So Father, I pray that this week, your spirit prompts us and reminds us to spend time with you. To not feel guilty about how long we pray or if we miss the prayer or if our thoughts go a little random while we're praying. But encourage us to, to seek you, to talk with you, to build that relationship with you. Because Father, you are sovereign. You do have foreknowledge. And you are for us. So Father, we thank you and we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, as